The famous children's story about Robin Hood, who heroically stole from the rich and helped the poor. Wasn't he from your city of Nottingham? Isn't that where he came from, this figure? I'm going to call you, Paul, the Robin Hood of fashion, taking elements from a rich man's world and making the clothes desirable but affordable. How do you like that, Sir Paul? I think that's really lovely. I'm not sure whether I'll get into the green tights and the pointed hat, but, uh, <laughs> but I definitely like the title. Welcome, everybody. I am Susie Menkes, editor of Vogue International at Condé Nast, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. There is probably a bicycle buried somewhere along the lines of books, the layers of quirky objects and funky toy animals sent to his London studio by Paul Smith's doting clients. For his entire fashion empire, celebrating 50 years of style, was the result of him falling off his bike as a teenager in northern Nottingham and being forced to give up his dream of a career in sport. Instead, my guest today, Paul Smith, built as slowly and steadily his fashion business, developed in London, shown in Paris, a hit in Japan, before that country was even on fashion's radar, and now a mighty empire of streamlined clothing and quirky accessories. With Pauline, his wife for nearly half a century, the Paul Smith label, founded in one tiny store, has now grown into a global business in five continents, 17 countries and 2,000 points of sale. As a majority shareholder, he's free to make his hard work fun. The London headquarters are filled with a bright young team of designers, creatives and organisers, working with the master's witty or quirky ideas, but with tailoring at the core. Modesty lies behind Paul Smith's world of wit and whimsy, as I called it when reviewing an exhibition of his work at the Design Museum in London in 2013. I remember seeing at that event a phrase scribbled by Paul on a giant post-it note. Quote, every day is a new beginning. I read that as the sense of surprise, the bright pink colour of his Los Angeles store, the unexpected mix of art objects in London's Mayfair shop, and the joyous, gleeful attitude that comes out in random ideas. He describes it as mixing things that are unexpected, and as he's going to tell me, it's his hands-on attitude which makes Paul Smith the king of invention as he creates his classic with a twist. Nice to talk to you. Are you, uh, are you keeping healthy? I'm, I'm trying to, and it does seem a very long, you know, long line of uh, nothingness, really. But there we are. What about yourself? I imagine that you, right through the pandemic, you've been working away. Am I right? Yes, I was in this building um, on my own, which has normally got a couple of hundred people in it, for 16 weeks on my own at this table where, are we at, where I am now. Um, not doing this, but normally on the phone because I just I'm not very technical, so I, I prefer the phone. But um, literally talking to 
you know, all the various people around the world that work with me and for me and uh, trying to keep the whole thing going. But it's um, when you when you read that a lot of the famous big brands are going through similar similar things as well and uh, uh, their sales and their figures are down as well. So you feel a little bit of comfort from everybody's in the same boat, you know. Well, the thing is, um, Paul, what's so amazing with you that you have been 50 years in fashion, half a century and still going strong. How do you think you got to this current multi-country global moment? I know how you started with a store of three metres wide in England's Nottingham. Isn't that quite a shift that you managed there? I think, um, uh, yes, absolutely. And of course, the, the original idea was just to earn a living <laughs> nothing more than that that was that's all it was and just thinking you know I, as you know I met Pauline when I was 21 years of age and she was the one that gave me the energy and the enthusiasm to say you know oh gosh you've always got so much energy and ideas why don't you have a little shop and why don't you do this and do that and I think to answer your question is that just we've never been in a hurry and we've always been um, as you know, we're basically an independent company, self-financed, and uh, we've just and we've always been together, Pauline and I. So it's never been searching for more, 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 and we've never been impressed by private jets or you know ivory towers. We're just uh, pleased to have health and happiness, and it's been just a very calm, slow. We've never ever gone like a rocket. Uh, in terms of business, and uh, and luckily we've never been number one, because as you know, the only place you can go if you're number one is down. To number two and uh, well below. <laughs> and you and I, especially you and your job, gosh, how many people have you seen that uh, were hot, 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 and then uh, sadly fall by the wayside. I've been looking a lot at you this year for your 50th anniversary and you seem to have made yourself very busy, no calming down at all. Tell me about this capsule collection that you've designed and you've done the 50th anniversary book with Fiden. So you've sort of, you've made the anniversary into something that is joyous. That's the idea, yes? Yes, I mean, rather than lots of celebratory parties and uh, events we just thought it was nice to have something that was a little bit more solid and so the Fiden book was a blessing it was lovely Fiden came to us and said they, they knew about the anniversary they wanted to do a book and actually it's been edited by Tony Chambers who you I'm sure you know who you edited mm. wallpaper magazine for many years so it's a book about me, not really um, obviously involving me, but, you know, it's it's a book that's been edited by, by Tony and, and, and my team here. And it's a, it's a lovely, interesting book, really interesting, because, as you know, many of the fashion books are just a sort of uh, a diary of that fashion show from 82, 83, 84, and lots and lots of pages of clothes and and of course it's got clothes in it but also it's um, a bit similar to the exhibition that the design museum did which is more about how I work and how I come up with thoughts and ideas and um, I think it'll be a lovely book for a young person starting out in the creative industry I think it will be sort of very it's very lateral in its its approach and then yes the capsule collection was just really um, my uh, design assistants going to the archive in Nottingham um, which which is not very complete I mean there's lots missing because 
<laughs> in the early days, I couldn't afford to, to keep the samples. I had to sell them because I needed the money. <laughs> so sadly, some of the very early work is not there. But um, there was enough there f- for uh, to inspire a little capsule collection. It's men's and women's, and it's a, a reworking of mostly printed pieces from the archive. So taking a, a print from the 80s or the 90s, reworking it uh, into a more modern uh, style, and it'll be in the shops, uh, you know, in the next two or three weeks. It's fun because I, I was probably one of the, well, I, I think I was the absolute pioneer of using photography printed onto fabric uh, in the 80s. And so we've re reused some of the photographic images uh, again uh, onto fabric. And although it's very common now in, uh, in the 80s, it was, a, it was a, quite a unique uh, thing. You know, Paul, I've been thinking about you and your work a lot. And I think I'm right in saying that your style from the very start was to combine tradition and modernity and that you've always been having that balance. You talk just now about being calm, really. And I think that it seems extraordinary that there's been this uh, between the traditional strike prints and the wild colours you use. Don't you also do a book with pictures which have got um, cards to show how your famous stripes were made, the sort of practical side of it. Yes, even the cover of the new book actually is a a reproduction that shows how we wind coloured threads around a piece of card to get to our uh, famous stripes. And by using real thread as opposed to the computer and printing, you see the relationship between the colours. So it's a very down-to-earth approach. And um, as you know, I... I never had any formal training, so it was Pauline that had the formal training at the Royal College of Art as a fashion designer. And then when we met, she was teaching a couple of days a week in in my hometown of Nottingham. And then when she came to to live with, you know, when we started to live together, she was teaching me about construction of clothes and pattern cutting around the kitchen table. So it was a very hands-on. And of course, when she was at the Royal College of Art, it was um, when they were still uh, teaching uh, couture. So, you know, it was uh, Joanne Brogdon, if you remember Joanne, who was the teacher there. And it was very much about how you made clothes. And it was not like it is today about networking and social media as well as clothes. It was just about the clothes. And it was about having an idea in your head and your heart and designing clothes that you hoped somebody would like. And uh, not not to do with, you know, a very large amount of money on promotion and uh, celebrity endorsement, uh, bloggers, etc. It was just about the clothes. I want to ask you something about Pauline that I've never really known. Do you do collections or ideas with her? She's always so discreet and holds herself in the background. But I imagine you're going to tell me that she's played a very active part over these 50 years. Is that right? Uh, in the, uh, initially, in 1976, 77, 78, going through to 82, the collections were more or less designed by Pauline, along with uh, you know myself doing the cloth selection and getting the things made. So I was doing more the practical side and the cloth selection, and she was actually designing the clothes. And in the Design Museum exhibition, there's some really lovely little drawings of 
of the initial work, along with all the costings and the profit, which was tiny, <laughs> I have to say, not like the large amounts that many of the big brands make now. Um, and then I, when she wanted to uh, leave fashion and study history of art, and then, as you probably know, she went on to the Slade School of Art to learn about painting, which she could already paint but to progress her painting and then I suddenly got the job of uh, being the designer and so um, at that point she was always in the background but it was um, I suddenly was designing and that's really when that overused phrase classic with a twist came about which is you know designing clothes which are very wearable but with that little sense of humor of a colored buttonhole or a patterned lining or something like that and that's how that came about you know they the classic with the twist because I, I suddenly got the job as a designer but I couldn't really, I didn't have the ability to design extreme fashion and also one of the key markets for me at that time was France and, and I just knew that they were dressing in quite a classical manner but why would they buy anything from me when they had lots of wonderful clothes anyway? So it was the coloured lining or the buttonhole or the little sense of humour that really made allowed me to enter the market and, and amazingly stay there um, for many, many years. Well, you've explained something that I was just going to ask you here. Right since the beginning of your international sales vision, you held these fashion shows in Paris and I could never quite understand why. I mean, of course, I don't mean why you wouldn't hold them there, but when your clothes are so fundamentally British in the cut and the wit and the cookie patterns, have you ever thought about coming back permanently to London, leaving Paris behind? Just to go back a little bit, if it's OK with you, is the reason I showed in Paris at the beginning was because there was only a trade show in London, no catwalk show, and it was it was literally a trade show. Uh, there was no Pitiwomo, there was no Milan, no New York. So the only place that really had a few fashion shows to coincide with the the uh, trade show called SEM, S-E-H-M, uh, which is in Port de Versailles in Paris. There were a few people who had fashion shows. So the only place to have a fashion show then, in my opinion, was, was France. And so I just stayed loyal to France. And when the London Fashion Week started, as you know, I showed my women's there. And then with the men's, we never actually put on a show there, but we always put on an event. But sadly, there just was not enough visitors coming to justify the expenditure of having any event in, in London at all because only a few buyers came, um, a very few press came. Whereas in Paris or Milan, mostly Paris, you really got everybody. Uh, and that was a very practical reason just to, to show in Paris, really. intrigued by something because you just said that you're not a very uh, digital person and yet isn't Johnny Ive a real friend of yours? Uh, I'd have thought yeah. he'd be a digital <laughs> enthusiast. Uh, well um, if I was to he... sneak you into the corner behind me there I daren't really say it too loud but there's several 
very beautiful boxes from him still in their wrappers <laughs> because I am not digital at all. And as you know, um, luckily I've got Sean here this morning who, who made all this work that we're, we're recording on right now. And now he, what's interesting about Johnny is I've known him since even before he started at Apple. And, and, and interestingly, as a company, we started online in 2004. So we were way, way, way ahead of many, many, even the big brands who've only really gone online in the last five years. Uh, and some of them still are, uh, are organized by other, other companies, not directly by their own company. So I think what Johnny did was made me aware of the modernity and the, 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 the modern way of communicating, but it was, it was just not for me. I'm still, I've got, uh, I know this is a recording, but I've got a pencil and some paper in my hand right now. So non-digital. Let's talk a bit about your office that we are um, looking at here. Now, it's something yeah. famous, your office. It is filled to the ceilings with stuff piled on tabletops. I hear it's um, nicknamed by your people who work with you as paracetamol room because every time you come in and out, you need an aspirin to calm you down. Absolutely. Um, uh, it's, it's sort of a uh, visual overload. But for anyone listening who, who's not seen a picture of it and can't look at it today, um, didn't you actually have a replica of it at your exhibition at the Design Museum in London? And explain a bit more about this crazy office of yours, because I'm sitting looking at you inside it, and it actually looks rather tidy to me. Yeah, oh, we tidied up specially. <laughs> yeah, not true. Well, actually, the, the racing, the cycle jerseys, I did spend three hours in lockdown folding them all. <laughs> they were just like a mountain of rags, but they're, they're rather beautiful. Um, Amy, I don't know how it started, actually, Susie. I mean, um, this, this office, I've been in this room since uh, December 2000, Previous to that, I was in an attic above my shop in Floral Street in Covent Garden, which was also had a similar feeling. I mean, I buy quite a lot of books because I love books. But apart from that, almost everything you see in this office, and I'm very humbled to say, are gifts from fans around the world. And literally, I mean, there's three or four things arrived this morning. So uh, it's this uh, incredible eclectic mix of toys, things that have been made by people. I, I love the fact that a lot of uh, the people who like my work from around the world make things by hand. I've got one boy from Japan who carves in wood. Uh, there's a camera, there's a bicycle pump, there's a house, all carved in wood. There's an artist from Paris that sends me things which are embroidered and uh, made by hand. Uh, and then there's um, an unknown fan that has been sending things for over 40 years, which are completely mad things like a skateboard, a chair, uh, a fluffy puppy, uh, whatever, and all... The they're never in a box. They always arrive with the stamps and the address written on the actual item. So written on the skateboard or written on a piece of wood or a plastic dog or something. So that's absolutely joyful, that is, because in this world of corporate stuff and, in my opinion, too much greed out there, it's so nice to have things that have no request attached to them. I want a job, I want some money, I, like, I love you, I hate you, or whatever. They're just things that people reach out and seem like they somehow want to communicate with me. And if there's an address, I always reply. The first thing I do, as you probably know, I think I've told you before, I, uh, including this morning, I, I swim at six, between five and six every morning, and I get here about six in the morning, and first thing I do is write postcards to some of the people that have sent things. So there's a nice... Um, 
relationship with the, with the fans and customers. You mentioned Japan right at the beginning, that somebody from Japan had sent something to you. You were so far in advance when you conquered Japan. Really, you became instantly known there. If I go to Japan now, people always talk about you. Do you think, it, as well as your clothes and what you sell, do you have, yourself personally, a playful, witty attitude that somehow chimes with the Japanese culture? For sure, I think. I mean, I've been about 100 times to Japan. I've been going there since 82, uh, which was an invitation of a, a company there that were interested in licensing my name there. But honestly, the success there has been to do with hard work and uh, my father, who... Uh, has never been to Japan and sadly passed away a few years ago. But he had this communication skill, which hopefully I uh, got some of from him. And so although even even now, uh, luckily a lot of people speak English, but in the early days, absolutely nobody spoke English. I had one person who spoke schoolboy English, but through visual communication, through fun, through a sense of humour and through really hard work, um, I think was the reason why I had a success in Japan. And I think I mentioned to you before maybe that in the 80s, a lot of people from around the world, designers from around the world were being invited to Japan with the possibility of a license. But so many of them thought it was just a, a way of earning money, but without putting too much effort and without trying to understand the market. And uh, I think that was so disrespectful. And most of them, in fact, I think all of them, have fallen by the wayside and they don't have a business there anymore at all. Uh, or if they do, it's a very bland uh, business. But by going there and not worrying about the jet lag and not, I mean, I, I love Japanese food now, but in the beginning, it was very odd having wriggly things in front of you that you were supposed to eat. <laughs> so I was always there with a very positive spirit. And I think definitely you've identified exactly the reason why I've done well there. I've apart from the fact that it's real hard work. Obviously, they love my product, but also communication. really gasping at the number of stores you have now and um, perhaps I've counted them wrong but it seems that since that first shop opened on Floral Street in Covent Garden I think that was 1979 yes and the Paul Smith yeah. name is now it's just across five continents it's in 60 countries and there are 2,000 yeah. points of sale are my figures right or have they just gone no, up they're again? completely right there were there was more before but obviously sadly during these last, not not just because of the period that we're in right now, but um, a lot of uh, of our customers uh, that were family businesses in places like Belgium, Holland, France, Italy, so some of them have sadly closed down because um, the domination of the big chains and, and, and not just the big luxury chains, but also fast fashion. So uh, there has been a reduction in some, uh, initially you probably would have, thought we had about 70 countries and about 3,000 uh, points of sale, which was true. And now it's, 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 it's more like the one you said, 2,060 countries, but uh, still breathtaking and still gives me, uh, if I, your listeners could see me now, I get goosebumps every time I think about it. You know, one of the things that gives me super, super goosebumps is when I stand in my warehouse in Nottingham in the middle of England uh, and just think, 
gosh, is this something to do with me? Because <laughs> it's like a computer, I mean, no, no, conveyor belts and there's uh, forklift trucks and high-vis jackets and a hundred staff. And uh, I just think, oh, gosh, how did that happen? Paul, I am right, aren't I, when, when I say that you are still, you remain an independent company with, with you yourself holding the majority stakes. But, I mean, isn't, yeah. that, isn't that a huge burden over the years? Aren't you weighed down by such responsibility? Don't you ever go into panic zone about keeping everything together? <laughs> well, during this <laughs> particular period, it's been incredibly uh, complicated. Uh, and not just this period, you know, the last few years has been different, hasn't it? The way people are trading and the power of the big brands and the financial institutions behind the big brands are so powerful. The joy of, uh, of independence, uh, and as you quite rightly say, I mean, I'm the majority shareholder, 81%, I think it is, and self-financed is the joy of that is spontaneity. And, and the joy of that is being able to make decisions about, you know, our famous L.A. shop, uh, which is, as you know, bright pink and the most Instagrammed building in all of California. And I mean, if you were part of a big group, you probably have to discuss whether that was correct for the brand image and et cetera, et cetera. So the joy of independence is spontaneity. The burden is, as you describe, is uh, things that I never fully understand even now after 150 years <laughs> is uh, things called cash flow and uh, you know um, keeping the whole thing uh, flowing um, with the mountains and the valleys of, of a fashion season as you know I mean what happens in fashion is that you make the goods you make the goods you make the goods and so then you need that all your money's tied up in the goods that's just sitting in the warehouse and then you ship them out and then you're owed money. So, you know, it sort of goes up and then it goes down and your flow of money is very complicated in this business. a question in here that is in a way the biggest question of them all do you think about or even discuss the succession question you're up at five o'clock in the morning swimming you always look tremendously healthy you're full of fun and energy are you ever going to calm down and stop i think you know you already know the answer i'm sure susie <laughs> Um, I mean, obviously, um, I completely understand about uh, health and getting older and also not just that in terms of uh, just in, in terms of the fashion industry being very fast and very changing. So I've built a wonderful uh, young team around me. And what was interesting about this year was that we already had a plan for 2021 of uh, adjusting the company uh, in terms of how it's uh, how it's organized and uh, where the focus is going to be and uh, bringing on younger members of the team that have been with, with me for a, a while and giving them new responsibilities and that completely by chance happened this year so I suppose I'll be here till the end uh, but luckily I've got a team around me that I think can respect the way I work and keep it going. Something else that I, I wanted to ask you, I don't think you're going to like this question either. 
Why do you think that you've never been quite such a star designer for women's clothes as for males? You know, I, I feel that when tailoring has a stylish moment, which is always coming back in the female market, you're absolutely right on it. But there isn't quite the same identity as there is each and every season for your menswear. I don't see the same feeling in the women's wear. No, I mean, I, right? I completely, uh, so yeah, right? no, you're right, absolutely correct. And, uh, and the, 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 the actual foundation of the uh, sales and success of the women's is tailoring suits, jackets, trousers, uh, coats and shirts. I mean, that's the foundation of the Paul Smith women's. And it's, it does sell very well. And especially our tuxedo collection, which uh, um, is, you know, works for, especially these days, uh, for red carpet, whereas a lot of the stars are not wearing the, the over-revealing, you know, dresses that they used to wear. But but I think it, the the answer is that I'm just so at ease with designing clothes for men, and that uh, designing clothes for women is is not something I'm I'm completely at ease with and relaxed with because, as you know, uh, first of all, many of the the, uh, going back to things we said talked about earlier, many of the brands come and go anyway in in the world of fashion, but especially in in women's. But also, it's not just about the clothes; it's about the look, the hair, the model, the jewelry, the shoes, the bag. And um, and, and the interesting thing about Paul Smith is that we sell something called clothes. <laughs> I walked through Milan Airport yesterday and all the big brands had no clothes in their shops. They only had accessories and there were just no clothes in all the big brands. And, and we sell accessories quite well, actually, especially as you pointed out, men's. But um, we, interestingly, enough, we, we sell, we're quite rare in the fact that our bulk of our business is selling clothes, which is, uh, I think, lovely. And unique. <laughs> yes, daring even. There are some people in your family, I'm sure you, um, Pauline's children, you consider your, your own family. And um, I remember seeing some very um, interesting jewellery from um, one of your granddaughters. Is there somebody within your empire but who really belongs to it, who you might think of bringing forward or perhaps to do part of it, like making jewellery? Uh, I mean, uh, no, Lauren Adriano is uh, Pauline's granddaughter and she's, I mean, she's just an independent designer and has very big success with extraordinarily special jewellery at, at very serious grown-up prices. But in terms of, uh, do you mean in relationship to the business, uh, somebody who could work within the business? Is that what you, you mean? Well, I mean, I don't know about these things, but when you talk about Italy, I mean, Italy is a... a um country where when they make clothes they pass it on to the next generation or have done yes, in the past, right. have done for many years um so that's why i was asking the question but yeah paulie's son originally was working in the business for 20 years and then um he decided to leave to follow his dream of uh, acting uh, which he uh, he he does uh, and and um, so we don't have any family in the business but we have a, a joyful team of young people that uh, if I can tie them to the desk with a little piece of rope, <laughs> then they'll hopefully they'll be here to keep the whole thing going. You know, business and the world is in such a tragic state, but the energy in my company at the moment is just amazing. It's just full, so full of lovely energy. It's just a joy every day. 
I just wish that it equaled business because, as you know, uh, uh, business is very complicated around the world. I'm not sure whether you know that I'm starting a, a Portsmouth Foundation in uh, later on this year, uh, which is lo- being launched this year. And uh, it's a, a foundation which will hopefully, initially it will be to give advice to young creatives uh, through the website, the uh, Paul Smith's foundation website and then eventually there will hopefully be a physical space where young creatives can come and you know look at the books look at the archive and enjoy part of the history of not just Paul Smith but just uh, the the lovely amazing things that I've managed to you know collect over the years and it's called Paul Smith's <coughs> foundation well it's impressive how you always seem to be doing something to help other people I must ask you something. It's really going to be my last question, Paul, I think. The famous children's story about Robin Hood, the fictional outlaw who heroically stole from the rich and helped the poor. Wasn't he from your city of Nottingham? Isn't that where he came from, this figure? I'm going to call you, Paul, the Robin Hood of fashion, taking elements from a rich man's world and making the clothes desirable but affordable. How do you like that, Sir Paul? I think that's really lovely. I'm not sure whether I'll get into the green tights and the pointed hat, but uh, <laughs> but I definitely like the title. And uh, yeah, I've always I I think the joy of Pauline is the, always being there and keeping my feet on the ground. And I think the feet on the ground and the down to earthness and sharing with others is definitely has a parallel to Robin Hood. I'm very happy with that. I hope you feel also that I've always been there. I I can't count the number of shows of yours I've seen. And as you said, it's not just in Paris, but in London. I remember us going in not so long ago to somewhere where there was wonderful music, live music, and all the things that we're missing now with this pandemic, that the uh, models walked through the room. And it was it was like a party, but not a crazy one. It was just fun. It was Paul Smith having fun and making fun for us. Ah, yes. Well, Susie, I mean, you're the unsung hero of our industry because your effort of not just going to the uh, the famous brands, uh, but going to the young up-and-coming brands and your support has always been uh, absolutely, uh, um, you know, unprecedented. Nobody else does it in the same way. So on the, on behalf of the fashion industry, th- thanks very much. I appreciate it on, e- on everybody's behalf. Well, I think that I appreciate you as a great up-and-coming designer, always with something new to say. Have fun. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. So Sir Paul, given a title by the Queen of England in 2000, opened his soul in our conversation. He sent out a torrent of information, even wisdom, showing how he built his company root to branch over half a century. The growth has been deliberately slow and steady, and as he says, looking at his mighty business in Middle England, he can hardly believe that it all belongs to him. There are lessons that Paul Smith touches on so lightly, but which get to the heart of building a brand. For the next podcast, we move on to Italy, where Laudomia Pucci will tell us how her father, Emilio Pucci, founded a brand in his name, expressed the Florentine history of his noble family, and caught that moment when casual fashion and its customers literally took flight. 
Creating Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Kahn and edited by Tim Thornton with music by Jörg Zuber and graphics by Paul Wallace. To find my articles, visit the fashion channel of vogue.co.uk and at Susie Menkes Vogue on Instagram. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. You can find me on Apple, Spotify, Google and all the usual channels.